Chapter Seven, Part One of Moments with Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From A Tramp Abroad, eighteen seventy eight to eighteen seventy nine. Wagner. One day we took the train and went down to Mannheim to see King Lear played in German. It was a mistake. We sat in our seats three whole hours and never understood anything but the thunder and lightning, and even that was reversed to suit German ideas, for the thunder came first, and the lightning followed after. Another time we went to Mannheim and attended a chivalry, otherwise an opera, the one called Lohengrin. The banging and slamming and booming and crashing were something beyond belief. The racking and the pitiless pain of it remains stored up in my memory, alongside the memory of the time that I had my teeth fixed. There were circumstances which made it necessary for me to stay through the four hours to the end, and I stayed, but the recollection of that long, dragging, relentless season of suffering is indestructible. To have to endure it in silence, and sitting still, made it all the harder. I was in a railed compartment with eight or ten strangers, of the two sexes, and this compelled repression, yet at times the pain was so exquisite that I could hardly keep the tears back. At those times, as the howlings and wailings and shriekings of the singers, and the ragings and roarings and explosions of the vast orchestra, rose higher and higher, and wilder and wilder, and fiercer and fiercer. I could have cried if I had been alone. Those strangers would not have been surprised to see a man do such things who was being gradually skinned, but they would have marvelled at it here, and made remarks about it, no doubt, whereas there was nothing in the present case which was an advantage over being skinned. There was a wait of half an hour at the end of the first act, and I could have gone out and rested during that time, but I could not trust myself to do it for I felt that I should desert and stay out. There was another wait of half an hour toward nine o'clock, but I had gone through so much by that time that I had no spirit left, and so had no desire but to be let alone. I do not wish to suggest that the rest of the people were like me, for, indeed, they were not. Whether it was that they naturally liked that noise, or whether it was that they had learned to like it by getting used to it, I did not at that time know. But they did like it. This was plain enough. While it was going on, they sat and looked rapt and grateful, as cats do when one strokes their backs. And whenever the curtain fell, they rose to their feet in one solid mighty multitude, and the air was snowed thick with waving handkerchiefs, and hurricanes of applause swept the place. This was not comprehensible to me. Of course, there were many people there who were not under compulsion to stay, yet the tears were as full at the close as they had been at the beginning. This showed that the people liked it. I suppose there are two kinds of music, one kind which one feels, just as an oyster might, and another sort which requires a higher faculty, a faculty which must be assisted and developed by teaching. Yet if bass music gives certain of us wings, why should we want any other? But we do. We want it because the higher and better like it. But we want it without giving it the necessary time and trouble. 
so we climb into that upper tier that dress circle by a lie we pretend we like it i know several of that sort of people and i propose to be one of them myself when i get home with my fine european education midnight entertainment at last all sleepiness forsook me i recognized the fact that i was hopelessly and permanently wide awake wide awake and feverish and thirsty when i had lain tossing there as long as i could endure it it occurred to me that it would be a good idea to dress and go out in the great square and take a refreshing wash in the fountain and smoke and reflect there until the remnant of the night was gone i believed i could dress in the dark without waking harris i had banished my shoes after the mouse but my slippers would do for a summer night so i rose softly and gradually got on everything down to one sock i couldn't seem to get on the track of that sock any way i could fix it but i had to have it so i went down on my hands and knees with one slipper on and the other in my hand and began to paw gently around and rake the floor but with no success i enlarged my circle and went on pawing and raking with every pressure of my knee how the floor creaked and every time i chanced to rake against any article it seemed to give out thirty-five or thirty-six times more noise than it would have in daytime in those cases i always stopped and held my breath till i was sure harris had not awakened then i crept along again i moved on and on but i could not find the sock i could not seem to find anything but furniture i could not remember that there was much furniture in the room when i went to bed but the place was alive with it now especially chairs chairs everywhere had a couple of families moved in in the meantime and i never could seem to glance on one of those chairs but always struck it full and square with my head my temper rose by steady and sure degrees and as i pawed on and on i fell to making vicious comments under my breath finally with a venomous access of irritation i said i would leave without the sock so i rose up and made straight for the door as i supposed and suddenly confronted my dim spectral image in the mirror it startled the breath out of me for an instant it also showed me that i was lost and had no sort of idea where i was when i realized this i was so angry that i had to sit down on the floor and take hold of something to keep from lifting the roof off with an explosion of opinion if there had been only one mirror it might possibly have helped to locate me but there were two and two were as bad as a thousand besides these were on opposite sides of the room i could see the dim blur of the windows but in my turned-around condition they were exactly where they ought not to be and so they only confused me instead of helping me i started to get up and knocked down an umbrella it made a noise like a pistol shot when it struck that hard slick carpetless floor i grated my teeth and held my breath harris did not stir i set the umbrella slowly and carefully against the wall but as soon as i took my hand away its heel slipped from under it and down it came again with another bang i shrunk together and listened a moment in silent fury no harm done everything quiet 
with the most painstaking care and nicety i stood the umbrella up once more took my hand away and down it came again i have been strictly reared but if it had not been so dark and solemn and awful there in that lonely vast room i do believe i should have said something then which could not have been put in a sunday school book without injuring the sale of it if my reasoning powers had not already been sapped dry by my harassments i would have known better than to try to set an umbrella on end on one of those glassy german floors in the dark it can't be done in the daytime without four failures to one success i had one comfort though harris was yet still and silent he had not stirred the umbrella could not locate me there were four standing around the room and all alike i thought i would feel along the wall and find the door in that way i rose up and began this operation but raked down a picture it was not a large one but it made noise enough for a panorama harris gave out no sound but i felt that if i experimented any further with the pictures i should be sure to wake him better give up trying to get out yes i would find king arthur's round table once more i had already found it several times and used it for a base of departure on an exploring tour for my bed if i could find my bed i could find my water pitcher i would quench my raging thirst and turn in so i started on my hands and knees because i could go faster that way and with more confidence too and not knock things down by and by i found the table with my head rubbed the bruise a little then rose up and started with hands abroad and fingers spread to balance myself i found a chair then the wall then another chair then a sofa then an alpenstock then another sofa this confounded me for i had thought there was only one sofa i hunted up the table again and took a fresh start found some more chairs it occurred to me now as it ought to have done before that as the table was round it was therefore no value as a place to aim from so i moved off once more and at random among the wilderness of chairs and sofas wandered off into unfamiliar regions and presently knocked a candlestick off a mantelpiece and knocked off a lamp grabbed at the lamp and knocked off a water-pitcher with a rattling crash and thought to myself i found you at last i judged i was close upon you harris shouted murder and thieves and finished with i'm absolutely drowned the crash had roused the house mr x pranced in in his long night garment with a candle young z after him with another candle a procession swept in at another door with candles and lanterns landlord and two german guests in their nightgowns and a chambermaid in hers i looked around i was at harris's bed a sabbath day's journey from my own there was only one sofa it was against the wall there was only one chair where a body could get at it i had been revolving around it like a planet and colliding with it like a comet half the night i explained how i had been employing myself and why then the landlord's party left and the rest of us set about our preparations for breakfast for the dawn was ready to break i glanced furtively at my pedometer and found i had made forty-seven miles 
but I did not care, for I had come out for a pedestrian tour anyway. Foreign Quotations I have a prejudice against people who print things in a foreign language and add no translation. When I am the reader, and the author considers me able to do the translating myself, he pays me quite a nice compliment. But if he would do the translating for me, I would try to get along without the compliment. REFLECTIONS ON THE ANT Now and then, when we rested, we watched the laborious ant at his work. I found nothing new in him, certainly nothing to change my opinion of him. It seems to me that in the matter of intellect, the ant must be a strangely overrated bird. During many summers now, I have watched him, when I ought to have been in better business, and I have not yet come across a living ant that seemed to have any more sense than a dead one. I refer to the ordinary ant, of course. I have had no experience of those wonderful Swiss and African ones which vote, keep drilled armies, hold slaves, and dispute about religion. Those particular ants may be all that the naturalist paints them. But I am persuaded that the average ant is a sham. I admit his industry, of course. He is the hardest working creature in the world, when anybody is looking. But his leather-headedness is the point I make against him. He goes out foraging. He makes a capture. And then what does he do? Go home? No. He goes anywhere but home. He doesn't know where home is. His home may be only three feet away. No matter. He can't find it. He makes his capture, as I have said. It is generally something which can be of no sort of use to himself or anybody else. It is usually seven times bigger than it ought to be. He lifts it bodily up in the air, by main force and starts, not toward home, but in the opposite direction. Not calmly and wisely, but with a frantic haste, which is wasteful of his strength. He fetches up against a pebble, and instead of going around it, he climbs over it backwards, dragging his booty after him, tumbles down on the other side, jumps up in a passion, kicks the dust off his clothes, moistens his hands, grabs his property viciously, yanks it this way, then that, shoves it ahead of him a moment, turns tail and lugs it after him another moment, gets madder and madder, then presently hoists it into the air, and goes tearing away in an entirely new direction. Comes to a weed. It never occurs to him to go around it. No, he must climb it. And he does climb it, dragging his worthless property to the top, which is as bright a thing to do as it would be for me to carry a sack of flour from Heidelberg to Paris by way of Strasbourg steeple. When he gets up there, he finds that that is not the place, takes a cursory glance at the scenery, and either climbs down again or tumbles down, and starts off once more, as usual, in a new direction. At the end of half an hour, he fetches up within six inches of the place he started from, and lays his burden down. Meantime, he has been over all the ground for two yards around, and climbed all the weeds and pebbles he came across. Now he wipes the sweat from his brow, strokes his limbs, and then marches aimlessly off, in as violent a hurry as ever. He traverses a good deal of zigzag country, and by and by stumbles on his same booty again. 
He does not remember ever having seen it before. He looks around to see which is not the way home, grabs his bundle and starts. He goes through the same adventures he had before. Finally stops to rest, and a friend comes along. Evidently the friend remarks that a last year's grasshopper leg is a very noble acquisition, and inquires where he got it. Evidently the proprietor does not remember exactly where he did get it, but thinks he got it around here somewhere. Evidently the friend contracts to help him freight it home. Then, with a judgment peculiarly antic, pun not intentional, they take hold of opposite ends of that grasshopper leg, and begin to tug with all their might in opposite directions. Presently they take a rest and confer together. They decide that something is wrong, they can't make out what. Then they go at it again, just as before. Same result. Mutual recriminations follow. Evidently each accuses the other of being an obstructionist. They warm up, and the dispute ends in a fight. They lock themselves together and chew each other's jaws for a while. Then they roll and tumble on the ground till one loses a horn or a leg and has to haul off for repairs. They make up and go to work again in the same old insane way. But the crippled ant is at a disadvantage. Tug as he may, the other one drags off the booty and him at the end of it. Instead of giving up, he hangs on and gets his shins bruised against every obstruction that comes in the way. By and by, when that grasshopper leg has been dragged all over the same old ground once more, it is finally dumped at about the spot where it originally lay. The two perspiring ants inspect it thoughtfully and decide that dried grasshopper legs are a poor sort of property after all, and then each starts off in a different direction to see if he can't find an old nail or something else that is heavy enough to afford entertainment and at the same time valueless enough to make an ant want to own it. End of chapter 7 Part 1